agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at North Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland Area Attorney Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? I'm uh, feeling uh, uh, 1.9 uh, trillion uh, uh, less good than I did yesterday, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say just the opposite for me, but we, we will, and, we, and that's something we will certainly get to. But, you know, before we do, just a couple quick things. First, I want to thank everyone who responded to our campaign for a new main production computer with your really generous contributions. Uh, I tried to make sure everyone got a personal thank you message from me, but in case I missed anyone, and also I just want to thank everyone again, because it was just so awesome, you guys. Thank you so much. We're really grateful for the support. And I'm pleased to say the the new machine is fully funded on order. And Dell tells me it should be here by this time next week. So very, very cool. And again, just uh, we have such great listeners. And uh, I, Jay, I don't know about you. I, I'm just always just I'm, amazed. I'm flabbergasted. Yeah, I, you know, it's really great. So thank you. I wouldn't you. give you money. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to thank our newest uh Contributing Patreon supporters, Tristan, Tyler, Derek, Cheryl, and Edwin. Thank you very much. And of course, when you're a Patreon supporter, you get that second full-length episode every week. You also get ad-free versions of all of our shows as well as other stuff at different levels. So check it out, patreon.com slash politicsguys. And again, always remember that if you would like all that bonus content, but you're just not in a position financially to support the show, just send me an email, mikeatpoliticsguys.com, and I will get you all set up. And as always, if a monthly pledge had too much of a commitment, oh, you know, that's that's totally understandable. You can also support the show through PayPal or uh, Venmo, Venmo now. Actually, we're at Politics Guys there, and all those links are actually in the show notes. All right. So, Jay, you know, before we talk about the first thing we're going to talk about, I wanted to talk about the first thing we're not going to talk about, at least briefly. We'll talk about it next week. That's the the CPAC, Conservative Political Action Committee Conference. Kind of a big deal. It's been going on for a couple of days now. We record on Saturday mornings, and there have been the usual sort of speeches. There was Ted Cruz there saying something about I. I don't even know. I can't. I can't say that I listened to Ted Cruz. But we, President Trump, is scheduled to speak on Sunday, and I think that's definitely going to be. Pretty interesting because it will be his first really public appearance since uh, the end of his presidency. And a lot of people are going to be watching that. We are, too. And we will be talking about that on next week's show. So if anyone wanted to know, well, why aren't you talking about CPAC? Just hang on for a week and we will be talking about it then for sure. One other thing, I guess briefly, Jay, is I wanted to. Bring up Mitch. Two other Mc- things before we talk about. The <laughs> yeah. Now I want to bring up Mitch McConnell. I, this came up late this week. Uh, you know, on Thursday of this week, when when Mitch McConnell was asked, I believe by Fox News, whether he'd support Donald Trump if he wins the twenty four the twenty twenty four Republican nomination, and he said some. He said to the effect of, "If he's a nominee, absolutely." And I, I was I was sort of dumbfounded by absolutely. Because let, let's recall, this is the guy who, less than two weeks before that, said former President Trump's actions preceding the riot were a disgraceful dereliction of duty, 
There's no question that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day with police officers bleeding and broken glass covering Capitol floors. He kept repeating election lies and praising the criminals. And so will McConnell support him if he's the nominee? Absolutely. I, I, I don't know what to make of that, Jay. It's, it's some it, help me out here. Well, I mean, you know, some I guess you might say it's a again the triumph of uh, hope over experience. Um, uh, no, I, I think uh, McConnell's one. I don't think he thinks Trump will be the nominee, and I think his his uh, his statements were more along the lines of, "Look, I'll support the Republican nominee," um, uh, because you know, look, that's that's what I do as as the at this point, the, the most senior elected uh, Republican um, in the country. Um, and I, I, I don't think he thinks it's, it'll be Trump. Um, I think he will make, uh, he, he may in fact take some action to make sure it isn't Trump. Um, so I don't know. I don't read a whole lot into it uh, that if Trump is the nominee, Mitch McConnell is going to be out there uh, campaigning for him. Um, quite honestly, you, you could probably em- envision a world where a uh, Mitch McConnell campaigning for Trump uh, is is sort of uh, hurts Trump, right? Um, so, yeah, I guess yeah. you know I was thinking about the oath that all senators take, right? And they take an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And it seems to me that Mitch McConnell's oath, if he were to write his own, it would be to uh, support and defend the Republican Party against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I mean, it, I, I'm being serious here because I understand I understand the argument that, well, I believe that my party is a vehicle for doing good for the American public and so forth. And so therefore I try to support my party. But when, when you seem to believe, at least if your earlier comments are, you know, his earlier comments are accurate, that the the party's president actually, you know, had some pretty significant issues that, you know, would go to that. It seems to me that he's pretty explicitly saying that if push comes to shove, I will put my party before I put the, before the constitution. And that just, that just really, I find it deplorable. Well, uh, I, I again, I don't think uh, he would because I mean, we, look, we we saw the, um, you know, he and and a number of other senators had the opportunity to do that. Um, you can say, well, maybe he did because he he voted to acquit. Um, but uh, I, I, I again, I I I, I take. It, you know, predictions of saying what you may or may not do a couple years down the road, uh, I always take with a grain of salt. And I, I don't, um, you know, I, I think, I think almost a, I mean, it, there's also sort of a strategic thing, right? Is, is if Mitch McConnell were to come out right now and say, I will absolutely uh, not support Trump and campaign against Donald Trump, um, uh, does that empower uh, Trump? Um, I think there's probably an argument that it might. Um, so no, I, I I guess I don't read as much into it as you do, um, other than he's him saying, well, I'll, I'll support the the nominee of the party, um, and again, that uh, predictions about the future were always uh, difficult, and it's you know, <laughs> pe- people change their minds. So. Okay, 
All right. So that, like I said, I was curious about your take on that, which I, which I assumed would be different than my take, but I could see where you can sort of reach, reach that conclusion. Um, all right. So let's, let's move on to actually the main story of this week. And that is that on Friday, the House of Representatives approved President Biden's $1.9 trillion pandemic aid bill by a vote of 219 to 212, with all but two Democrats supporting the measure and Republicans unanimous in their opposition. And uh, this bill includes those $1,400 checks to Americans making less than $75,000 a year. Although there is a sharper sort of phase out above that level than in the previous stimulus checks and a complete cutoff at $100,000. And the bill also includes a number of other uh, pretty important provisions. And as you would expect, you know, it's a $1.9 trillion bill. So uh, there's a lot in there, like, for instance, extending unemployment assistance uh, through the end of August, boosting weekly payments from the current $300 to $400, increased nutrition assistance for low-income families, a pretty big boost in the child tax credit. Right now it's $2,000 and it's going to go up for a year to $3,600 for children under six, uh, tripling the maximum earned income tax credit for workers without kids, $130 billion for K through 12 schools, $40 billion for higher education, increased premium subsidies for the Affordable Care Act policies, $350 billion for state and local governments, $14 billion for vaccine research, development, and distribution, $46 billion for testing and contact tracing. $7.6 billion for hiring 100,000 public health workers to support the COVID response. And uh, maybe most controversially, uh, and uh, that increase in the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025, as well as an end to the tipped minimum wage. And that just kind of hits some of the main things. Obviously, again, you know, $1.9 trillion, there's a lot in there. But there's probably, a, yeah, a couple... It, couple things I missed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think those are probably the main things. But next, we'll, you know, next up is the Senate, where we know that at least one of those House provisions, and that's the minimum wage increase, won't pass because the chamber's parliamentarian this week ruled that it can't be considered under reconciliation rules, which allow budget-related legislation to pass without the possibility of a filibuster. So, Jay, what do you think? I assume if you were a House Republican, you would have voted against this with every other House Republican. But what's your what are your main objection or objections to this? Uh, main objections uh, have to do with um, well, the three hundred fifty billion to st states. Um, I, I think a lot of this is it's it's the padding, right? That we've been talking about before. That this is an opportunity to bail out some states that have issues that that may be unrelated to the pandemic let, let me um, let me just let me just stop you right there because i wanted to i, I were hoping you, i was hoping you were going to say that because i actually yep. read the legislation uh not all 600 uh, 500 something pages of it but i was curious about that particular provision so i read the entire section about that provision and in that 350 billion to state and local governments there's a specific requirement saying that they use that funding only for responding to the pandemic, covering pandemic incurred costs or replacing right. revenue lost due to the pandemic. So you can't just say, well, you know, we'd like a new fleet of whatever, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, electric vehicles just because it would be cool to have or something like that. Or there's a sale that, you know, whatever, we'll just get. And so it seems to me, I, I think that objection that you have is an important one and a reasonable one. And I feel like, though, in crafting the legislation, they designed it to address 
that specific objection, which I agree with you on, actually. See, no, I, I, I here's the the problem with that is that money is always fungible, right? And and if you're if you're getting uh, three hundred fifty billion, not I'm I'm saying in the aggregate, um, your states are then able to offset other expenditures uh, that they would have made uh, against that that three hundred fifty billion and redirect them. Um, well, yeah, but I mean, we've we've done this. We, we've done this in I mean, in states for forever where you have a OK, we have a lottery and oh, it goes to fund education. Well, of course it does. But what it does, it just displaces uh, other general fund money that would have been spent in the same place and opens it up to be spent somewhere else. Uh, so, well, sure, but so I don't see that's a problem, because if I mean, if all the states can only use that money for pandemic stuff. It, that certainly helps out every state, but it only helps them to the extent that the pandemic affected them. And so they're going to be if you have a huge problem with whatever your pensions, uh, your pension system, like, for instance, uh, Illinois or K- Kentucky have, that doesn't really help you any more than just uh, because because this money goes Toward that, you still have that problem. So it helps you in the sense that, well, you're not in as deep of a hole as you were, but but that's only because of the pandemic. So I, I mean, yes, money's fungible, well, but, I, but I, that's a I think it's a kind of a false argument. Well, think about it this way: uh, certainly, a lot of this, these states are going to be arguing. Uh, that hey, our tax revenues have been down because of the pandemic. Well, yeah, that's therefore I mean, that's, yeah. we ought to replace this this same money. So it, it's. And, and and I would say a lot of studies are showing tax revenues aren't as down as, as initially had been predicted. A lot of states um, have, have bounced back and actually done better than, than uh, initially predicted, which is a good thing. Um, uh, but uh, well, let me let, let's put it this way. If, if I said, um, you know, I'm going to give you money to pay your mortgage for the next five years, but you can only use it for your mortgage. Um, uh, wouldn't that open up other savings that you could then just spend money on other stuff. Yes, but that's not the case here. The case here is it's it's money designed to to recompense states for for money that money that they lost due to a specific thing. So it's yeah. just like saying, well, if, you know, if someone says, oh, a tornado blew your roof off and I'm going to give you money to replace your roof. And you're saying, well, yeah, but money's fungible. And so, you know, that money that you use to replace your roof, you can go ahead and send the money you wouldn't have had to use out of your regular budget. You can go ahead and buy groceries with. Well, yeah, yeah that's true. So- but, you know, that's the, the tornado came and ripped your roof off your house. And so that's the real issue here. Based on uh, my experience, this is another, I guess, criticism of that approach would be, though, that, um, you know, caused by the pandemic, uh, I'm betting will be defined rather broadly by these states and uh, not enforced terribly stringently by the federal government. Now, now that's now that's another issue. And on that, I think, yeah, I, I can see. I can see certainly making an argument that, well, how is how is this going to be enforced? And that's something that you and I might actually have a little more agreement on, because I I think you're probably right that it will be done in a very sort of permissive sort of way. And I can certainly understand, you know, uh, especially a fiscal conservative saying, hey, let's be let's be very careful about what we okay and what we don't. And so on, on that, I think on those grounds, yeah, I I think you have a point there. So, so another, uh, you know, criticism, and this sort of feeds into the first one, and 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 I guess kind of gives gives you a little bit of a tip off of of 
why the first one isn't um, necessarily a legit argument is when this money is going to be spent. Um, for example, uh, there's, you know, of, of education funds. I mean, right now, and this is this is based on uh, an op-ed that uh, Mitt Romney uh, wrote um, last week, is that of the $80 billion that's already been appropriated, sent for, for education, um, $68 billion is still, has not, has not been spent yet. Uh, only 4% of the money for K through 12 has been, haven't been spent. Some, uh, uh, some of this money is, is not going to be spent, uh, until, uh, up through like 2027, 2028. And I think it's, it's a tough argument to make to say, look, this is something we absolutely need right now immediately to get us out of this, uh, uh pandemic, um, and the problems caused because, because of it. Uh, but you know, we're not actually going to be spending the money for another five years. Um, we haven't spent the money that we've been given already, and and we're not going to be spending the rest uh, in, until much later. I think that that really cuts, you know, against the integrity of the argument of saying, "Well, look, this is this is an emergency. We need to do something right now. We need to go big. We need to turn on the fire hose, as as it were. Um, this is sort of we need to turn on the fire hose and keep it running for five years. Uh, so I I think that's that's problematic, and that indicates that look, there are a lot of other priorities in here that aren't pandemic related it's stuff that uh democrats wanted to fund anyway and and this is a, a convenient vehicle for it well yeah you know i think on that it's not exactly the case that there are there are these hundreds of billions of dollars that school districts are saying well yeah you know we have this money in our account we just we're just putting it in big scrooge McDuck, mcduck vaults and kind of rolling around in it that's sure. i mean that's not and i think that's the impression People get when they hear that only X percent of this money has been spent. There's a long and very involved process getting from getting through the congressional appropriation of the funds to the actual all the bureaucratic hoops that have to be jumped right, through. Right, right, right. No, we, yeah, we talked about yeah. that a couple of weeks but ago. I, yeah, that's why I'm saying it's important to keep that in mind. And secondly, even if you know some of that money won't actually all of it get spent for a number of years into the future – if it's still related to that hit, that initial hit that's being taken because of the pandemic, I don't see where that's a problem, whether it's spent in, you know, if, whether it's spent in 2022 or, or 2032, for that matter. And and thirdly, this idea that it just kind of funds a great Democratic wish list, I, I would disagree with that, because in looking through the legislation, it seems to me that everything in it or almost everything in it is really pretty focused on COVID. Like, for instance, that $130, $130 billion to K through 12 is, you know, it has to be focused on, spent on getting schools back to in-person learning as soon as possible. The higher right. ed money but, is, but, has but to let's go put it toward— this way. If, 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 we're, if we're still haven't been spending that, if we still have $68 billion in the in, uh, in the pipeline that hasn't been spent— uh, to get uh, places back open to uh, to normal, um, I mean, uh, are, are, are we saying that you know we're going to need this money to get schools opened up uh, normal five years from now? I mean, that's that's the problem. And I guess my my thinking is, look, if you're spending this kind of money, and if you know you have so much in the pipeline that still hasn't been spent, uh, maybe we wait to see. Uh, if the additional funds are really needed, uh, you know, we'll, let's wait and see what what schools and, and other uh, states, local governments do with the other money that is in the pipeline before we uh, pump in more. Okay. And that, that's not, that's not an unreasonable argument. I think then you have to kind of 
do some, obviously do some calculating and do some analysis about what these needs are and so forth, and reasonable people can come to different conclusions about that. It seems like, as you would, now you're going to say, as you would expect, but certainly the schools and the state and local governments say, no, we actually will definitely be needing this funding. And again, I, I know you said, well, what are they going to say? We're going to turn away the money. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, but I believe, I mean, you know, I believe that that's yeah, I mean, been taken I guess into my, account. My point is, it, if it's if it's an argument of, oh, we need this money in order to open up during this school year, um, and and then they say, but but we're not really going to be spending that money for another five years. I that's see, I see that what you're saying but, to me that that you know, yeah. okay, well then then you're, the premise that you're you're giving me that this is what you need to open schools is is not really true. Well, see, to me, the way I look at it is, well, we're going to need this to open schools and we can we can go ahead and do this, but we're going to be essentially borrowing against the future and we're not going to be able to, just like, you know, all, all the time, people go ahead and take on expenses that they can't necessarily afford at that time, but they know that there's income stream coming in and so they can go ahead and borrow against future uh, future income flow. And so that's how I look at it more. So even- I, I don't, I mean, I don't see any evidence of, of schools borrowing. I mean, I, that's, I mean, I guess that's, that's the other question is, I mean, to some extent, if school districts and, and other governments like that are limited as, as to what they can borrow, how they can borrow. Um, well, borrowing or cutting or, re, or you know, re, uh, uh, moving funds from one place to the other, that sort of thing. And, you know, sometimes you, sometimes you have to do that to kind of meet an immediate crisis, certainly. But, uh, and then, but after that crisis is over, then you still have all these holes you need to fill. Uh, so, well, okay. I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm, uh, that, Let me that, ask you this: Is yeah. there anything in this you like? Um, I think the, you know, the the actual um, uh, payments to individuals, uh, I like because it's kind of like a tax cut. Um, I've said that before. I think it it is sort of the government giving people their own money back. Uh, <laughs> I think it's an effective. I think it's an effective sort of stimulus of, as opposed to. Um, uh, you know, getting, uh, you know, rejiggering the tax code or something like that. Uh, you're actually giving um, taxpayers back their own right now. There's there's certainly certainly a redistributionist element to it. Um, there's also the idea that look, that money is most likely going to get spent uh, more quickly. Um, and again, that's that's sort of a strange thing, right? If you send somebody a check for fourteen hundred bucks, uh, they may well go out and uh, use it the next day and and we're talking about these other organizations that it's taking them months and years to, to figure out how to allocate or do something with the money, which is, you know, my, one of my arguments for it's, well, it's better to have these sort of just direct stimuluses uh, to, to people. Um, again, I'm not crazy about the redistributionist aspect of it. Um, so, uh, but, so see that, that's the thing I'm, I most dislike about this. I mean, I'm going to be getting, uh, I'm going to be getting a, uh, that one of those $1,400 checks. And uh, uh, that's going to go into savings. It's not going to spending. Whereas if the, whereas well, if they I, had, I that's a good point, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Say, whereas if they had extended or if they had increased uh, unemployment insurance more, you know, this for 300 to 400, they could have gone to say 500 as opposed to for a bunch more people, as opposed to giving the money to me, because I'm in a, you know, in a pretty okay position, that money would have all of that money would have been spent right away. And that would have much more of a stimulative effect, much more of an effect of helping somebody who really needs the help 
as well as, and, and you know, if you want to give out checks, okay, fine. But uh, I think that, you know, the $75,000 is, is too high of a cap. And maybe you do it, you know, based on overall family size or something. But, uh, and that's, you know, I'm, so I'm with one of the, one of the, there were two Democrats who voted against this and one of them who voted against this, voted against for exact, exactly that reason. And I think that's a, I think that's a really good point. So uh, I, you know, I, I think you may raise a good point on that. So many people are putting this in the savings. Um, and I think that's fascinating because actually the, the data that I've seen bears that out. Yeah. Um, there's actually been a, a, a spike in, in household income uh, along a lot of people. And there's been a spike in savings. Uh, in some respects, that's that's good. Um, helping people build up, uh, if, if they're not using it, some sort of um, safety net uh, funding. Um, but again, that 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 goes to the point of is this really necessary for a stimulus or not? And and you know, again, I'm 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 happy to see money go back to people as sort of a tax cut, <laughs> essentially, and they can do with it what they will. Um, so some then, people will save it, some people will spend it. Uh, but if if the argument is we need this money because it it has to be used as a stimulus. Um, I, I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not necessarily buying that rationale. I'm not, I guess I, I guess I'm saying I'm not disagreeing with the policy, but, yeah. uh, the, the salesmanship they're use, using to sell it, I, you know, I, I think is. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's for two things. I mean, there's certainly a direct stimulus part of it, but there's yeah. also a, a recovery part of it. And so looking at it, looking at it that way, there are certainly parts you're right that aren't as going to provide that sort of direct stimulus, but there are parts that will. Like, And I think probably other things that you might at least be okay with is raising the uh, the EITC, which is often a lot of conservatives are a big fan of that, you know, boosting the child no, tax not. credit. Really? Oh, oh the child tax credit. Yeah, yeah, I'm lukewarm on it. Yeah, well, so <laughs> y- y- you want money to go back to people, but not poor people. I mean, what, what would you, I don't know. I, I always thought the EITC was a big conservative. Yeah, we should, we should do that. Well, I think a lot of, a lot of conservatives see it as, as uh, earned income tax credit as opposed to child tax credit. Um, it it is, is sort of a, a welfare expansion type thing. It is pure redistributionism. I mean, if you want to say that's good policy, bad policy, okay, but, but that's, that's what it is. Got it. Okay. Right. I mean, it's it's in, in many cases, it's it's giving tax refunds to people, um, more refunds than they pay in taxes. Yeah. So it's it yeah you know, it's essentially yeah, giving your money to those poor people. Bastards. Yes. Well, I mean, I mean, I was saying it's it's giving, um, it it's uh, redistrib- redistributing um, yeah money from from one group of people to another. Um, and you're against and I, that? I, yeah, generally. So you would vote, say, for repeal of a progressive income tax? Are you are you for that? Like brackets, or no? Think- no, actually, no. I'd 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 be uh, I'm more in favor of a, a flatter tax. I'm not I'm not crazy about a flat tax, you know, uh, per se, because I think you lose some policy leverage and stuff that you can do. Um, but. But I think uh, our, our system right now actually discriminates against this. Is, this is sort of way off topic and maybe, you know, something we talk about on tax day. Sure. Yeah. But, but you know, one of the, the biggest uh, hurdles to, um, uh, you know, growing businesses, growing jobs, uh, more money is, is this laddered uh, tax system that, 
that you have these increasing marginal tax rates. Um, that if you you flatten that, you increase your uh, the mobility of people to to go up without getting taking a tax hit when they start making more money. Yeah, we'll definitely have to talk about this on tax day because you're wrong on so many counts here, and I can't even begin to be, begin to get into that. But the, the data doesn't bear you out, and a lot of that. And I understand this is sort of like the conservative article of faith that you all genuflect before and your altars of money. But uh, we will definitely have to get to that because I, I think that that's. Uh, no, no, seriously, that's absolutely something that we we can have. I think a good a good discussion on, and uh, well, I think your idea of doing that right around April fifteenth is an excellent idea. So I am going to, in fact, write a note right at this very second for us to right. for us to do that because I think it's a great Let's idea. Talk about marginal tax rates. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, I obviously the next thing then is this goes to the Senate, and it seems pretty clear to me. What's going to happen here is that this will pass the Senate in a slightly different form without, obviously, without that minimum wage, maybe with a few things here and there to make sure that, you know, uh, uh, Senators Manchin and Sinema are okay with it, basically. But I think it's going to pass the Senate in more or less a similar kind of way through reconciliation. And I was wondering if that's your, if that's your take as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. Um I would I would wonder if there might not be some other minimum wage piece uh as we had, we had talked about before there's a procedure where the Senate can overrule the Senate parliamentarian um and this would sort of be a a uh eliminating the filibuster light type thing right it would be eliminating the the bird rule um on this um I th- I think the Democrats still don't have the the votes for a 15 they might have the votes for an 11 or 12, you know, as like Joe Manchin's talking about. Um, so maybe you see something like like that um, uh, also. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, I, but, but I will say, I think the whole budget reconciliation process with these weird bird rule exceptions is just really kind of a horrible way to get things done. I mean, what, what I think the Senate really needs to do is to reform the filibuster. It's not necessarily an end it. Or, you know, keep it exactly the same. And what I'm hoping is that after what I'm betting will be almost complete Senate Republican sort of uh, opposition to any major legislation, uh, Manchin and Cinema can be convinced to support some kind of a reform, if not ending it, maybe something where, you know, the minority gets X numbers of filibusters per session or something like that or, you know, something along those lines. Because, I think it's important to keep in mind that the framers actually considered the idea of a supermajority to pass legislation, and they they rejected that idea. Uh, I know, Jay, you're a big fan of the Federalist Papers. I am. I and, love them. You know, I was looking at Federalist 22 uh, a few days ago, and you know, in Federalist 22, Alexander Hamilton kind of tackled that you know, head on. He said, you know, the public business must in some way or other go forward. If a pertinacious minority can control the opinion of a majority respecting the best mode of conducting it, the majority in order that something may be done must conform to the views of the minority. And thus the sense of the smaller number will overrule that of the greater and give a tone to the national proceedings. Hence, tedious delays, continual negotiation and intrigue, contemptible compromises of the public good. I mean, nothing you know, worse than a pretentious minority. There you go. You know, I mean, so, up. And, and so I think, 
I, I understand that there's this sort of, well, we do it because we've always done it that way. But, you know, I, I think there's a lot of support for the idea that, hey, you elect a group of people and, and, and elections have consequences and people should be able to act and, and do stuff and then bear the responsibility for that. And, and I think, you know, whether whether that majority is a conservative majority or a liberal majority, I, I you know, I think they should be allowed to actually get something done. Yeah. So, you know, you're not wrong on the, the founders piece, but uh, I think you're incomplete because the other thing that I, and I think I mentioned this uh, when we talked about this before was uh, Hamilton's understanding of, of how the Senate would operate is different than what it is now uh, yeah. because, you know, we changed, we changed the way senators were, were elected. Um, and, and I think, I think there's something to be said there. I'm, I'm not saying that, that, that negates everything that uh, that you just read, um, but I think we have to take it in context. Fair uh, point. The founders assumed that senators would be appointed by states, right, and would essentially be representing a state's interest uh, as opposed to direct election, right. No, and, and I think it's always important to not pull, you know, or not consider specific pieces outside of the greater context. So, so yeah, I mean, that's uh, certainly our system has changed an awful lot, or in in some ways, at least, especially on the Senate side, since 1789, and uh, I, don't, I don't know if you're if you're calling Jay. I don't, I don't hear you calling necessarily for uh, changing direct election of senators, though. Uh, maybe you are. I don't know. Well, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. Uh, it, it wouldn't fly. Obviously, yeah, that would be a big um, problem. But I, no, I think I think that's something fundamental sometimes for for people to think about. Sure. That that. Uh, in its it's it has as it was initially configured, um, the Constitution had this idea that states, you know, the people essentially would be represented in the House, um, and and states would be represented uh, in the Senate. That the people would be indirectly represented uh, by their state, um, but there's a different dynamic there. No, and, and that's true. I, I don't know the extent to which that changes uh, the, the reasoning about the problematic nature of supermajority requirements, but, but certainly that is a, you know, that is a change from, from what we saw initially. And I, I would say, regardless, the, the, the founders still saw the Senate as the body that would be, uh, by design, less responsive to public pressures, public passions. Um, uh, I, I think, I don't know, was it, was it, that's not the case I, anymore. Yeah, that's certainly right, that, that, you know, that went the, out yeah, the window a long time ago. It's the, it's the uh, saucer that will be the you know cooling uh, the, for the, the hot cup of tea. Um, uh, that you know that, that that was that was how the Senate was viewed was a you know that's why we give them longer terms. That's why they're directed uh, they're elected indirectly. Um, so, uh, so we so can the, have statesmen like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. You know, well, right, of. right, and well, no, I mean the, the idea would be that. Um, yeah, I mean, under under the old old way, you might not uh, get a Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley. You might get someone who is who is more deliberative. Yeah, although if we if we went back to uh, if we went back to state legislature appointment of senators in some states, you probably would get exactly exactly well, that's, that these uh, that's days. Quite possible. Yeah. yeah. So, all right, uh, uh, let's move on. Before we do, we're just going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about the House passing the Equality Act. 
Okay, so this week, the House of Representatives passed the Equality Act, which would amend the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to provide protections for LGBTQ folks in employment, education, housing, and other areas. And the vote was largely along party lines, although there were three Republicans who joined with all of the House's Democratic majority in supporting this legislation. Now, Opponents of the bill argue that it's an attack on traditional Christian values and that it would violate the privacy rights of biological females pose threats in bathrooms and locker rooms and threaten the integrity of women's sports. Now, public opinion polling is pretty broadly supportive of greater LGBTQ protections. In fact, one recent poll over 80 percent saying that civil rights protection should be extended in employment, accommodations and housing. And at present, just under half of all states have some laws providing protections for LGBTQ people, but they vary considerably. And this measure would basically extend a uniform level of basic protections across the country, including to the 27 states where people can be legally denied housing because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. So, Jay, what do you think about this legislation? Um, you know, I think devil's in the details, right? I, I think few people would uh, say that we should discriminate against uh, uh, folks because of their, um, well, you know, again, we start to wander into the weird semantics um, because, you know, initially when, when this sort of idea was, was kicked around, the idea was it was to pr- protect um, uh, gay, lesbian people in, in employment, right? That you couldn't file, uh, fire someone for their sexual orientation. Um, uh, since then, the transgender movement has, has added a new wrinkle into it. And we've, we had the Bostock decision um, that said, well, sex is something broader than, than, than your, your, your biological sex. Um, so I, I guess I'm, I'm on the one hand, I, I'm, pleased to see if, if we're going to do these sort of changes uh, that they're done legislatively, right? As opposed to right. Bostock yeah. uh, in, in, through the courts, because look, uh, you can agree or disagree, but uh, everybody votes and you get to see how they vote. And, um, you know, there's, there's accountability and there's, there's, uh, there's democracy and there's self-rule there. Um, uh, that said, I, I, I'm concerned about then the implications that stem from it, like you just mentioned, um, women's sports, uh, bathrooms, locker room type uh, accommodations, um, and, and I'm, I'm again, I, I'm, I'm all for doing this legislatively as opposed to judicially, um, but, but I think there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences uh, uh, going forward on this. Um, particularly in the, the women's sports areas. I, I, I think what I'm saying is, I guess you could have had a much narrower bill to say, listen, we want to protect people from being fired for their, uh, their gender identity um, and define that sort of narrowly. Um, you know, and, and I want to say and, and, I, I agree with you in a sense on that because, uh, you know, there's, there's an old saying, do you, do you want change or do you want an issue? And I think yeah. your argument would be that, well, Democrats or liberals want an issue that they can run on as opposed to actual change. And I'll say that I we can get to this in a minute, but uh, your, your unintended consequences issue aside, 
if it meant the difference between nationwide protections and, and housing and, and, you know, and employment for LGBTQ folks or nothing, I would be okay with carving out exemptions that would allow states, for instance, to have biological-based standards for sports participation, use of public bathrooms, locker room facilities. I don't think that's necessary. The reason I, I don't is because this isn't some radical new experiment. There are 21 states who have laws about this, and we haven't seen the, you know, the destruction of the republic or any kind of awful things happening. But like I said, that aside— if it's a, if it's a question between having a having a world in which I don't care where you live, you cannot be discriminated against in in like your your work or your or housing because of your gender identity, sexual orientation, or what we have now. Hey, I'll take half a loaf rather than none, and, and I feel the same way about faith based objections. You know, I, if if uh, evangelicals, if it's necessary to get this passed, to have evangelical churches, say, keeping biological males from using women's bathrooms in, in their in their facilities or continuing their traditional teachings about sexuality and all that or discriminating against LGBTQ people in hiring for faith based reasons. I, I don't think that's right, but I'll take what I can get essentially here. Yeah, and and I, as you often say to me, look, if all uh, progressives uh, thought the same as you, then then maybe we wouldn't have the same, we wouldn't have these issues. Um, but I, I think it's not unrealistic to say that there are groups out there who are going to use this uh, to seek out to try to punish folks they don't like, like evangelical churches, uh, right? Um, uh, there will be lawsuits brought uh, against uh, religious groups who say, "Listen, I, um, we we do not believe in uh, uh, in 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 transgender uh, uh, equity, or or we believe that this offends our our religious sensibilities." And um, uh, you know, no, thank you. Um, and and I think you know, again, I think you could have a reasonable carve out. Um, but but you don't. And and uh, I think you're going to see a lot of litigation stemming from this um, that's going to be hurtful to a lot of organizations going forward. And, and I think it's going to be, you know, again, the, the women's sports uh, issue is one that that uh, is not going to go away. And I think this this does hurt women in law. Well, let me let me because let me throw out an example. Um, I uh, represent a client that has a. Um, uh, they're a, a public uh, charity um, that uh, runs uh, homeless shelters. They have one shelter that is uh, designated for women only. Um, typically, the women and it's the only only women only shelter in Cleveland. Uh, typically, the women uh, go there are fleeing abusive situations. Uh, many of them are coming have been abused by men. Um, there is not an unreasonable fear that women who are, you know, very concerned about physical abuse by men would be forced to be sharing the same bathroom shower accommodations with biological men. Um, and, and I think that's, that's a concern, right? Um, and I get that, yeah. but I, I, I guess maybe I'm, maybe I'm underestimating the percentage of people the percentage of biological men who identify as female. It, it seems to me that's 
that's a, not a very big percentage. No, I don't think I don't think it's a big percentage at all. But I think you're underestimating the percentage of uh, progressives who would sue on this issue just to have the issue. I guess I guess I guess what I'm saying is that in a real world situation, just I sort of with the women's sports thing, I, I've heard people saying, well, you know, men will just pretend they're women so they can win in sports. And I thought if to me, that's such a ludicrous argument because the the just the incredible amount of stress and difficulty and, and public just a, a admonition that people have to go through when they are courageous enough to admit that the gender they identify with is not their biological gender. The idea that people would, that, that any significant number of people would do that so they could, you know, win a, win a sporting event. I just, I just think that's a complete, that just right. blows my mind. Well, you wouldn't think that, that if you were a same sex couple getting married and you could get a, a, a cake made by anybody you wanted to virtually except this one guy who didn't want to make you a cake. That, that you would then demand that he make you a cake and, and uh, sick the, the, the state government on them uh, for not doing so. No, I, I, so but yet I, that, that, that happens and that, that will, will continue to happen. I mean, that's, that was sort of that to, to me that, you know, landmark cakes, that was a, a tremendous thing of, look, these, the, the couple who wanted the cake could have gotten one anywhere. Um, uh, but that, yet they were going to insist that this one person who didn't want to make them a cake, make them a cake. I mean, isn't that like saying that, like, well, you can rent an apartment almost anywhere, and just because you can't get this particular apartment because the owner doesn't like the fact that you're a cross-dresser, that, you know, you can just get another apartment. Maybe that cake shop is just the one you want to go to because it's more convenient, or maybe that apartment complex just is a little bit closer to your work. I see. I, I don't, you know. It, yeah, but, but, but look, living in the real world, we both know that, no, it's a setup for a lawsuit. I mean, that's, that was the, the reason. But but I'm okay with it's that beca because it's, because it's because look I am not I'm not oh, that that there are certain progressives who are not okay with uh, hey great you have this right uh, it's everyone has to celebrate that right along with you you don't have to celebrate just you have to make my cake if I'm just a general public person who walks in and says make me a cake and now, they, and they I think they would have made them they would have made them a birthday cake. They would have made them an uh, I don't know if, uh, anniversary cake. That's an interesting question. Um, they would have made them made them a retirement cake, but they wouldn't make them a wedding cake. Yeah. And nope, you got to make me a wedding cake. Yep, that's it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I don't see there's any difference in saying that. You know, if a if a, a a black and white couple walked in and said, "No, sorry, interracial cakes can't do it," I don't see it as being any different. Oh, I think it's. I think there's a a a, a world of difference um, because I, hmm. I I think first of all I don't I don't know that there's any anywhere out there. I mean, I suppose I shouldn't say anywhere, but um, any sort of good faith religious uh, objection to interracial marriage. Okay, that you in know. this day and age, right? And I, I think I think you can still. Uh, that would be difficult to say. Look, in good in good conscience, according to my faith, uh, I I can't do this. Okay, yeah, um, fair. Yeah, oh, yeah, you're right. That that's a that's a fair point. I guess it could be a thing where if it's religious intermarriage, there could be good good faith religious objections to that. But yeah, no, that's a, yeah. It, okay. Just just like I think it would I would think it would be a violation to to refuse service to anyone of uh, uh, a, 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 you know gender or sexual orientation that, that you didn't agree with, right? Like, you know, if, if, uh, 
a uh, gay man comes in and says, hi, I'd like to buy a dozen uh, cupcakes. And you say, no, because you're gay. Well, that's that's a different that's a different situation than uh, make me a cake uh, uh, celebrating my wedding. No, that you're right. Those are those are different situations. Yeah, that's I, I see your point, and I and I agree with that. Yeah. So, uh, so but that's what I'm saying is is my my fear is there are people out there uh, who are going to pick this up as a weapon because that's what they see it as, right? And there will be suits against uh, places like women only homeless shelters saying uh, we demand that you uh, allow biological men in. Sure. And, and you're and saying that listen. if you're saying that if the legislation were more narrowly tailored, that wouldn't be an issue. Yeah. yeah. And I yeah, I agree with you. And that's why I think that unfortunately, I think what's going to happen is that it won't uh, it won't be changed sufficiently to allow it to pass in the Senate. And honestly, I don't know that any changes would be enough to get. 10 Republicans in the Senate to vote for it. I just don't see, I see this issue as being too toxic for Republicans to vote for, even if the, even if it were very, very narrowly tailored, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think you're probably right. And then, and regardless, I don't think it sells in West Virginia. So yeah, well, there's, there's that too. (laughs) There's that too. All right. uh, Let's move on to our, our next story. And that is something I never thought we'd talk about, but a controversy over the office of management and budget director. I mean, Go figure, right? But it's it's normally something that's pretty low key. But that changed when President Biden nominated Neera Tandon to the position because Tandon is the president of the liberal think tank Center for American Progress. She's you know she's been involved in national politics for decades now, and this isn't about her basic qualifications for the position. It's not really in question, but it never is. No, well, this one isn't. You know, but what Senate Republicans and at least one Democrat, that's Joe Manchin again, they're objecting to are her many social media comments that disparaged conservatives and uh, and Bernie Sanders as well. Um, and prior to her nomination, prior to this being made public, Tandon deleted over a thousand of her tweets and something she admitted to in her confirmation hearings. Now, Some people on the left argue that racism and sexism may be at least part of the reason for this response from conservatives and candidates of Indian heritage. And the Republicans uh, are saying that her tweets disqualify her were often all too willing to discount or even ignore entirely the tweets of President Trump. So, uh, Jay, let's say you're in the Senate. Do you vote to confirm Tandon or not? Oh uh, no, but but first let's let me let me just touch on the you know this is racism sexism. Sure. Um, at what point in our society will we finally get over this absolute nonsense? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you're saying that the the racist um, uh, Republican Senate, uh, which voted to confirm Ben Carson, uh, which years ago voted to uh, confirm Condoleezza Rice. Um, uh, which I'm I'm trying to think uh, other um, notable uh, cabinet or Supreme Court Clarence Thomas um, uh, is is you know some somehow uh, when there is a question on a a Democratic nominee it's racist and sexist and and I I think that's that's some of the the kind of rhetoric that that really poisons uh, what what goes forward that every every time there's you know look if you want to say it's because of these tweets okay. Um, but uh, the reflexive racism, sexism business, I think, is uh, it, it just it just doesn't. Uh, let me let me respond to that before we go further, because I think uh, I think you I certainly would agree to you to the extent that 
it's not the end-all, be-all only issue. But I also, well, I'd all, I would disagree with the fact that it's, it's necessarily not an issue at all just because in the past the Senate has confirmed people of color and has confirmed women to positions. My, my take on this is a little more, I guess you could call it nuanced, in that it can play a role. I've seen plenty of instances where even though women and people of color may be approved for things, the, the standards at least – even even semi-consciously or unconsciously are a little bit different. I mean, and I see this as something as prosaic as, as uh, student evaluations of myself and my wife. And uh, the things that students say to my wife, who were both university professors, they would never think of saying to me. And I, I, honestly, I think she's a better, I, I know she's a better teacher than I am, but some of the things, well, because she's a woman, I think in part. And so I'm not saying it's the only thing, but on some level, I absolutely do believe that a lot of people have this unconscious, if you don't want to call it bias, certainly an unconscious, I don't know what you'd call it, a small bias. I think that absolutely exists. I've seen it. I see it every day. Uh, but do you think that, I, uh, again, the the idea that I don't think that it's it, it, the thing, but I certainly think it can play a role. It can be a, I think it can be a factor at the margins, and, and maybe it's a factor here. I don't know. For me, I actually think it's more about. To me, the big thing is is the tweets argument and yeah, the no, idea. I, no, absolutely, and, that, and to me, that's that's why the the sexism racism thing. Uh, strikes me as is so false. Yeah, right? I think it's, I think I certainly think it's a mind thing. Now, to me, because I think you could very very much say, "Hey, we got we got issues on the merits here." Well, here here's the thing. To me, it's not so much the tweets; it's the fact that before her nomination was made public, she deleted over a thousand of them right. because a thousand's a lot of tweets. You know, because it seems to me that. If you don't think that these tweets are problematic, if you can make if you can make the argument, and I think you can, that well, as the head of a liberal advocacy group think tank, this is the sort of you know stuff that I did, and I'm not shying away from it. But deleting them says this was somehow wrong, and so I don't think you can have it both ways. I think you can make an argument. There's nothing wrong with doing that in that position, but that's not the same. That's not what I would do as director of OMB. But I don't think you can delete all those tweets and say, well, that's not, there was nothing wrong. I mean, you see what I'm saying? That's, that's yeah, no, my absolutely. problem. No, I agree with that 100% on that. Yeah. I mean, if she hadn't deleted those tweets, I would have, it would have been a, a no brainer for me about how I'd vote on that. But that would, that actually gives me a certain amount of, a certain amount of pause, I guess. Yeah. But I should also, so you, you wouldn't, I mean, do you really think that mean tweets should disqualify someone? Um, yeah, I think they can. Yeah. See, because depends. Because I mean, my view, and I said this when Donald Trump was president, my view is that the president basically should get to pick his or her own people unless they are clearly unqualified, you know, and, yeah. and, and sure, Joe Biden could have picked someone less controversial, you know. Um, uh, but also, I think, you know, it's pretty clear that Biden is working very hard to make his nominees the most diverse group ever. And so far, that's actually been the case. It's a, it's a more diverse group than under Trump, certainly. And it's even a considerably more diverse group than under the Obama administration. And at the same time, it's a more experienced group in measure in terms of prior government experience than either the Trump or the Obama administrations. And clearly, Joe Biden is trying to send a message here. And, and I think he's you know, succeeding, though it is giving him some problems. 
Well, isn't that a little insulting though to, to say, look, this is the only the only woman or, or minority I could find uh, is this one who has this you know big uh, tweeting past, right? I, and I'm sure there there are hundreds, if not thousands, of of other qualified women uh, and or minorities who could do that job just as well. Well, I, um, and and I, and I do think in this case that the tweets do go to the qualifications to some extent. Mm-hmm. Because part of the job is going to be working with Congress uh, more so than, say, uh, you know, some other, uh, uh, you know, cabinet member. Right. Right. I mean, Department of Managed Budget, that's what you're doing is, is budget. And, and it's it's necessarily working extensively with Congress. So if you have tweeted and alienated a whole lot of folks uh, on both sides of the aisle, um, that necessarily sort of compromises your ability to do the job. So I. I I, I would say it's, um, you know, I wouldn't say the tweets are are, are always relevant, um, but certainly, um, you know, public public statements are 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 relevant, and public statements about people you'd be working with are, are relevant. I mean, much like uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene said that, uh, you know, she thought that uh, Pelosi, her her future coworker, uh, ought to be, you know, tried for treason. Um, or shot it's, in the head. Not a, it's just not a good way to start on the new job. Yeah, no, and and I I, I think you're right about that. It certainly is is a consideration uh, weighing weighing everything, uh, including her qualifications and so forth. I would because my default is to unless there's a clear disqualifying thing to give the president to allow the president the right to pick his or her people, and so I would have. I, and I would have – I'd like to think that I would have had that position if it had been a Republican president, someone who from a conservative think tank who tweeted mean things about Democrats. You know, So that's kind of where I, where I stand on that. But I, right. I, and my sense is that she's not going to be confirmed, and I guess that's probably your sense as well, right? That's my sense too. Well, you know, and then there are also – look, if, if we're looking also just in the real world um, hardball politics of this uh, – there is always a sense typically in, in any presidency of the Senate wants to assert itself, whether even it's a, it's a partisan thing or even just an institutional thing. And they, they typically, I don't want to use the phrase I was going to use. Um, but the, you, you make a stand somewhere just to, to remind them, Hey, uh, you still need our, our consent. Right. And this is this is maybe the one. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think you're right. I think you're right. You know, we're going to take one more quick break. And uh, even though we're running a little long, there's a story that Jay really wanted to talk about. And the more I dug into it, the more I thought Jay's right on this. And that is the House hearings this week on fake news or the attack Fox News hearings, depending on how you want to look at it, I suppose. And we will get to that right after this final short break. Okay, so Jay, you know, a story that you brought to my attention is uh, hearings this week on Wednesday, in fact, that the House Energy and Commerce Committee had a hearing that they called Fanning the Flames, Disinformation and Extremism in the Media. And Democrats on the committee cited the January 6th insurrection as the main reason for the hearing. And throughout the hearing, they criticized conservative media outlets for their role in promulgating false information and dangerous conspiracy theories. As well, two Democrats on the committee sent letters to a bunch of carriers, including Comcast and AT&T, 
asking them a number of questions, including what moral or ethical principles they use when deciding to carry certain channels and whether or not they plan to continue carrying Fox News, Newsmax, OANN, and if so, why? And you've got a pretty big problem with this, right, Jay? I do. I do. I think this is very much uh, uh, an attempt to chill speech uh, that the government, uh, as it as it's currently constituted, is opposed to. Um, I, you know, I think the the thought experiment is is, you know, what what how would have the media have reacted if Donald Trump um, had said, "Look, there's a whole lot of fake news going on there around there. I want to have, uh, or you know, had a proxy in Congress uh, issue letters saying." Um, uh, you know, we'd like the folks uh, who carry CNN uh, uh, or MSNBC to show up and ex- explain why they're allowing uh, these crazy conspiracy theorists to keep coming on and saying I'm a Russian spy, uh, given them airtime. Um, uh, you know, should should uh, uh, some of these shows uh, put on people like um, uh, you know uh, uh, Trump arch nemesis Rosie O'Donnell? Um, who was a 9-11 truther, right? And it was an inside job. Uh, I want Congress to look into this. I think the the response would have been, oh my God, this is, this is you know, the beginnings of authoritarianism and censorship and all that. And to some extent, I think they'd have been right. Um, I, I, I have a, a big problem uh, with this because it's, um, you know, there's, there's it, again, the, the, the making the government the monitor of, What's true and what's not true uh, is 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 incredibly problematic, uh, and it's really antithetical to to any sort of a free press. Um, and uh, it, just the idea of a, a you know ministry of truth, I think, is is a real problem. And this is seems to be where it's headed. Um, so, and you know, I guess I guess the other thing I, w- I would point out is pretty much any reporting. Um, that is unflattering to the government or or certain you know political actors. Uh, when it's first reported, uh, it will be um, described as misinformation or disinformation. Um, and if if you can shut companies down uh, by pressuring the group, pressuring the platforms that support them, um, I think that's that's a, a, a tremendous uh, tremendous problem. So. You know, I guess I would make a distinction between the hearings and the letters. And I don't know if you would make a distinction there. Do you, do you think that the hearings were out of line as well? I actually, actually, I think the letters were more out of line. Okay, that's that's um, that's what I was yeah. getting at. Yeah, you know, I yeah. I was I read the letters. Uh, they there was someone posted a copy of them somewhere, and, and I read the the letters, and I, I can see where they're more problematic. But I also believe that, you know, these are members on the committee that have jurisdiction over this sort of thing. And they were requesting information about the standards that outlets use when deciding on what content to carry. And given that broadcast media is subject to, you know, is subject to, is subject to regulation, has been for, well, since there's been broadcast media, uh, that doesn't seem to me to be outside of their legislative, you know, potential legislative duties. And so, I guess I would I can see where this could potentially be a problem but to me it's not a problem unless there's actual legislation being considered so if they want to request information about that I don't have a problem with that I actually I'm curious about that I want to know what standards they use and I want to know their justification for carrying certain things I think that's pretty useful to know now that doesn't mean that I would be in favor 
of legislation that would say you cannot carry certain outlets. I would be up in arms against that sort of thing. But I, 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 the letters as they stand, it's like, no, that's actually that's some interesting stuff. I want to know that, too. Well, it, you know, it doesn't it, though, get into sort of a, um, uh, hey, a nice, uh, uh, nice platform you have here. Uh, shame if somebody started regulating it. Um, you know, isn't there sort of a, uh, a threat beneath that? Oh, I hope so. Yeah, absolutely. I think, well, I mean, <laughs> isn't that a problem? Of the no, government no, I don't saying, think so. Cause I, I, mean, think... I think there's, there's, I mean, what's, what's the difference between saying, uh, I am going to deny you your, your free speech, or if you say that I'm coming for you. I think the difference is, I mean, government, oh, there's always the implicit threat of regulation of anything. And you're right, if it becomes more... But, but there it, shouldn't be when it comes to, to speech. That's, uh, that's why we have a First Amendment. Well, that's why I, we have what's called the chilling effect, right? We have a First Amendment, but the First Amendment uh, does, not inco- does, not cover, does not cover lies and, and, and you know, disinformation designed oh, yes, to... it does. Absolutely it does. Well, then, if it yeah. does, then... Then libel and slander, I guess, are okay under the First Amendment. No, no. Uh, well, they they uh, they are. I mean, but but, but you have not. a civil you you have a you have a civil remedy uh, in in um, libel and slander, and what it it turns on is the damage that is done to um, uh, a, a particular mm-hmm. person, and they have a right to get, be vindicated in court if those uh, statements are in fact false. Um, but it doesn't give the the government uh, a right to simply say we have a general police power to determine what's true and what's not true. I see what you're saying. So then, you feel that uh, there there can be no content regulations of broadcast media at all? No, of, of course not. I mean, there's there's all sorts of um, uh, you know, health and moral type stuff regulation, right? I mean, that's in broadcast. Now, again, broadcast is a little different than cable. Um, but uh, no, I mean, I, I what I'm what I'm uh, troubled by is the idea of the government saying, "Look, we'll determine what's uh, inf- what's correct information and what's misinformation." No, and and um, I see. And you, uh, yeah. you better not get on the wrong side of that line. And, and that's why I think there's an important distinction between between asking for information on this and passing. I I would have a hard time envisioning any sort of legislation that could that that wouldn't you know that that deals with this that wouldn't set up government truth commissions and that would just I I would totally not be okay with that. But I also think that it's important to call organizations to account when you and I and everyone know, or oh, just about everyone who's being halfway reasonable about this, know that these organizations were, were in fact spreading things that they knew to be untrue because it was good for ratings. And yeah. you can talk and, 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 well, and, and lots, and, and that's uh, plenty of, uh, of media companies, outlets do that. Yeah. And, and just or, the idea that to say that, well, you know what, we're going to, I'm going to sit back and allow democracy or the trust in democracy to be destroyed and just hope that enough people like Dominion voting systems bring lawsuits who have deep pockets who can afford to do that, 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 uh, that's, that I think is, you know, that that's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. And so I think while regulation might be impossible in any way that would preserve the first amendment and it would be struck down by the courts anyway, I certainly think applying some, applying some pressure, that's perfectly okay in my book. 
Yeah, and to me, that's that's exactly the problem. Is is the right. look? If we can apply the pressure and get the same result, uh, then uh, we can avoid the the First Amendment. Yeah, we see, I see your chill, point. We can still get the chilling effect that we want, uh, but we can avoid the First Amendment. Yeah, I see your point, and and I, I I guess I agree to an extent, but I feel like this only happens when, or only should happen, only does happen when it's just the. The lies that are promulgated are just so egregious and go so to the core of democracy like we saw in 2020 that that's an entirely different thing. And so, therefore, if that kind of speech is chilled, I'm okay with that. Well, I mean, what about sort of the uh, uh, so the MSNBC type type folks who who would uh, bring on your your uh, Rosie O'Donnell's your your. real, you know, Trump is a Russian agent, folks. Um, On that, you know, I have to say there was a recent report from an ex-KGB agent who claims that Donald Trump actually, I had the book, I guess, that came out, uh, that Donald Trump actually has been, uh, if not an actual Soviet, or sorry, Russian, uh, Russian asset was was cultivated by handlers and was a very easy target because he is both vain and not very intelligent, according to him. So, you know, I, that, not that that's going anywhere, but uh, but yeah, no, I, I see. No, what but, okay, so here, but that that is what you just said. That is sort of exactly my point that I I, I would like that I want to make. Is sure. What you just said, right? Um, I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, I don't know either. You don't know if it's true or not. The KGB agent may not even know if it's true or not. You know, I yeah. don't know. Yeah, I haven't read yeah. the book. Yeah. How would you feel if if you and I were called before Congress, um, uh, which in some respects might be kind of cool? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, <laughs> but but to answer for it, listen, you uh, you're making representations on your podcast show that about things that go to the core of democracy, but they may or may not be true. Right, I, I would be. You could, you yeah. could be spreading. You could be spreading Russian disinformation right here. You're a stooge for Putin. Yep, I hear you. Right, I mean that's 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 the 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 problem is it, once you get the government in into that, then what happens next time is is you decide. Well, you know what? I better not say that because I don't want to get called before Congress again and be accused of being a stooge for Putin. Yeah, no, and I think that's a good point. But I also think there's a difference between. The, the example that you just used and when a major news organization knows has plenty has buckets of credible evidence that things are that that things are one way and argues repeatedly brings a person after person after a person saying things that that organization knows to be false and that's that's a different situation maybe you think that's too fine of a distinction and one that can't be made by government and i might be inclined to agree with you about that yeah, no, I I do, and I think the the remedy is if um, Fox has somebody uh, crazy, then uh, then let CNN or M- MSNBC um, have someone else and say, hey, that guy's nuts. See, to uh, me, you know, that's here, just a here's recipe. The, here's the proof that this is that this is wrong. See, to me, that would work in a world where people were watching both you know CN, CNBC or MSNBC and Fox, but that's not the world we live in, and so we end up with partisans on both ends who just get fed a load of a load of just you know, in, in many cases, lies. And so I don't think that that's really a remedy that works because it just, things just keep on getting worse. Okay. Well, we will, we will continue to continue to watch because I don't think this is going away. No, no, um, I definitely and, agree. And, and, you know, the that. other, Mike, the other thing I wanted to point out, and we're kind of backtracking a little bit on the letters, the information that was requested 
a lot of it was was really digging a little digging a little deep, and I mean, to me, it struck me as some of it's probably uh, 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 proprietary, right? I mean, as I was yeah, could about mm-hmm. contracts and and but but there were there were questions about how many viewers did you have and when did you have them, and uh, you know, you know, essentially who was watching. I mean, and that that really sort of troubles me a little bit. That uh, do you want Congress inquiring into your cable provider as to who's watching when now again they're not saying you know mike was watching on on this yeah. day but still it's aggregate numbers and and that's still to me uh uh i i find uh, uh more than a little troubling that that the government is going to be digging in onto who's watching what tv shows when all right well you know before we go jay I, every week I, I was saying to jay before the show starts is that we we typically end with recommendations but we haven't in a while and that's on me because i just keep on forgetting about that segment but i do want to end this week with a recommendation segment finally once again uh, after a brief after a not not so brief hiatus and jay i thought maybe we'd start off with you so my recommendation and i rarely rarely i'm not on twitter i don't follow twitter but this uh uh, yeah this was someone that was something that was linked in uh, something else i read but there is a Twitter uh, uh, account, and it is uh, COVID last year, um, or words to that effect. Um, and and what they do is they sort of report uh, the uh, you know pages of, of the reporting of uh, the COVID virus uh, as it was reported last year. And uh, I'll just say it's 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 eye opening. Uh, it is uh, uh, <laughs> refreshing, and. It, it gives you a, a good sense of, of, look, what really happened and who'd said what during the time uh, that, that uh, you know, this was happening and evolving. Um, and to me, as a conservative, it's, it's a really good reason why we ought to always be skeptical of experts. So. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, there, there's, there's a whole other conversation there about skepticism of experts, but I will not get yeah. into that. No, no, no. I and mean, we, and we, and we can have it. Something. And my, my point would be, and yeah. I think your point, not to jump all over it, but no, go ahead. you would say, look, they were using the best information that they had at the time. And that turned out to be wrong. I, yeah, I feel like pointing out that sometimes we should be skeptical of ec- experts in this in environment is sort of like saying during the middle of the, the great flood saying, hey, you know, a little bit of water is good for the plants. It's like, yeah. Um, but anyway, anyway, whole our point. My recommendation this week is uh, actually a documentary series uh, called Connected, A Search for Unity. It's uh, put together by a guy named Monty Moran, who's the former CEO of Chipotle. Uh, And uh, I was actually able to preview the first two episodes. It's really some interesting stuff. And uh, if you want to check it out, you can just go to Monty's website. It's loveisfree.com, which might sound like a weird uh, URL for a website, but it's from the title of his book, Love is Free, Guac is Extra, Chipotle, that sort of thing. So, uh, And you can watch a trailer for it and just find out when it's airing in your area. And I thought that was really pretty uh, interesting, and I felt it was well worth my time, and I wanted to pass that along. All right, so that's it for this episode. But as soon as we are done, we're going to be recording our bonus episode for for supporters. And on that episode, we're going to be talking about uh, the Supreme Court deciding not to hear a case on the uh, Pennsylvania election challenge and Justice Thomas's dissent, which I actually 
have a lot of sympathy for. We'll get into that. We'll get into President Biden's executive order on on supply chain review and concerns among not having pharmaceuticals and computer chips and all that. Uh, Donald Trump's financial records finally in the hands of the Manhattan District Attorney, what that means, and uh, maybe more. We'll see how it goes. But all that will be there for supporters on Wednesday morning. It comes out every Wednesday morning. And also, as a Patreon supporter, you get that. And again, ad-free versions of all our shows. Check that out, patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you ever want to get in touch with us, you probably know how to do that, I hope. Mail at politicsguys.com or also on Facebook and Twitter. And you'll find links in our show notes. We have special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.